to be seated. I invite you, if you will, to take a Bible and turn almost to the end of the Bible. Uh, go to the end and back up a little bit, and you come to the little letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at some of that chapter. I've, through the months, off and on, been bringing a series of sermons on perseverance, how to continue on in the Christian life. And this is the continuation of that, 1 Peter chapter 2. This was written to uh, believers who were being persecuted. They were going through difficult times. Uh, So Peter, who was the disciple Peter, that uh, had denied Christ before his crucifixion and then was restored to ministry, uh, he is writing in this letter a lot about enduring uh, trials and tribulations. And part of what he does in this passage is to remind Christians who they are. So I'll begin reading in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Hear, Hear God's holy word. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Do you ever uh, feel as though you don't measure up? Uh, Maybe have a real negative attitude toward yourself when you've disappointed yourself or maybe you've disappointed someone else? It seems as though in our, our, uh, our culture we're constantly reminded that we don't measure up. We're reminded we don't have the right that we're not the right age, the right shape, the right height, the right income, the right skin color. It seems as though the bar is constantly raised higher and higher and we are never able to jump to it. And it can do a number on us. Uh, Maybe you feel like Charlie Brown did in this cartoon with Lucy. There was an old cartoon and here's Lucy, of course, in the psychiatrist booth. Psychiatric help, five cents. And of course, her first patient that day is Charlie Brown. And she's very frustrated at him, as always. And so she says to him, Listen to me, Charlie Brown. Sometimes I feel we are not communicating. You, Charlie Brown, are a foul ball in the line drive of life. You are often in the shadow of your own goalpost. You're a miscue. You're a three-putt on the 18th green. You're a 7-10 split on the 10th frame. 
You are a dropped rod and reel in the lake of life. You're a missed three throw. You're a shanked nine iron. You're a call third strike. You're a bug on the windshield of life. Do you understand? Do I make myself clear? Now that's helpful counsel, isn't it? But that, thankfully, the gospel, the word not only means good news, it is good news. That God is for me. The gospel is affirming and positive. Yes, it shows that we have sin and we have problems, that the wages of sin is death, but it gives us the answer. And God provides mercy. He provides mercy for me and every good and perfect gift. So today, I want us to look for a few minutes at the affirming things that God does for us and how God describes you and me in Christ, who you are in Christ. And so let's be reminded of that. Because if you and I are to persevere in the Christian life, whether you've come to faith in Christ in the past month or maybe you've been a believer for decades, if we are to persevere, we have to have a clear understanding of who we are. This passage uses a metaphor all through it. It's the metaphor of a building. And so we're called living stones in verses 4 to 8. Living stones in a spiritual building. And like all quality buildings of that day, it had a cornerstone. Now, cornerstones today typically are symbolic. You may go to a new building and there'll be a, a block there and it say, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this church. But in those days, they weren't symbolic. They were essential because the cornerstone was used by the builders to set all the angles for the rest of the building. So it had to be perfect. It had to be set right. It would determine the accuracy of the rest of the building. And here it tells us that the cornerstone of this building is Jesus Christ himself. So Peter goes into a full description of this stone. He says he's living. He's a living stone. Now that's strange because when we talk about something being dead, we'll even go so far as to say it just wasn't dead. It was stone cold dead. And say that stones are living seems rather odd. But Peter's saying that Christ is the cornerstone. He's living. He says he is the chosen stone of the Father. And he is precious to God. Christ wasn't seen as precious to people, to most of the people. Men rejected him because he was not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. And Jesus called attention to that. In Matthew 21, he said, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He went on and he said, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Why did the people stumble over Jesus when it says here they would stumble over this stone? Well, it tells us in the latter part of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message. They refuse to submit to the word of God. Now, for every one of us here, for all of you here today, for every one of us, Jesus is either a stepping stone or he's a stumbling stone. One or the other. He's a stepping stone into heaven or he's a stumbling stone into hell. And you have to deal with Christ. You can't decide, well, I'll just step around that stone and go around it. No, the worst type of rejection of Christ from what we read here is a type that has heard the gospel over and over and over and over again and just refuses to believe, refuses to obey the word of God. And so Peter gives that full description that the stone is living and it is precious. And then he describes us as stones in this building that God is constructing. 
All true Christians are part of this building. And he says in verse 5, you also, you also are part of this. We are stones which make up the building, and each time a person trusts Christ as their Savior, each time a person recognizes their need of Christ, their need of forgiveness of sins, and puts their trust in Him, it's like God quarries another stone out of the pit. And He puts it in this building. And some of us as stones were very religious before, some of us were completely secular and had nothing to do with with religion. Some of us were very humble and beaten down. Some of us were arrogant and self-righteous and proud. Some of us were knowledgeable about the things of God. Some of us were completely ignorant of the things of God. Some were very young, even as children. Some very old. And like individual bricks in a building, none of us were beautiful in ourselves. Let me, let me explain what I mean. If you've ever walked up to a construction site where a commercial building was being built and they were using brick or where you went to a house and there's a pallet of bricks there or some, some stone for mortar masonry work, I can't imagine someone walking up and picking up a brick and saying, my, what a beautiful brick. You might say that about the finishing lumber. You might say that about a chandelier or a light fixture, but you don't say that about the brick. Not the individual brick, but when it's put together, then the building, you may say, well, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful building. And so when God quarries us, you might say, as stones to be put in his building, there's a unity that forms a whole. You know, sometimes people will say, well, why do we have all this disunity in the body of Christ? We've got denominations that have their own doctrinal distinctives or emphases and so forth. That does nothing to diminish the, the unity of Christ. There's, we're still unified in Christ. Uh, denominations don't change any of that. And so we are part of one building, one universal, throughout the world, throughout time, building. It's a unified house. And so what happens in the basement? If some of the stones decide we're going to pull out of the basement, it can make the roof collapse. So we're all tied together. What happens to one of us affects the rest of us. What happens to one part of the building in another country, like John led us in in prayer, whether it's Haiti or other places all around the world, that affects us. I heard the late Adrian Rogers uh, say that when he was a young pastor, Uh, he had gone to pastor a church and he was involved in his first construction project there for the church. The church was adding, uh, they were building an addition to their present church building. And he was with the architect one day and he mentioned to the architect uh, that he really wanted to look nice but they didn't have much money to work with. And the architect said this, and I, I wrote it down, good architecture is not the arrangement of beautiful materials. It's the beautiful arrangement of materials. When God constructs his church, it's not the arrangement of beautiful people, beautiful stones. It's the beautiful arrangement of people or stones. That's what God is doing. We are not beautiful bricks in and of ourselves, but God is putting us together in such a way that there's a beautiful building as a result. Then he says we're priests in this temple. I'm kind of jumping around here, but in verses 5 and verse 9. In the Old Testament period, God's people had a priesthood. But today, believers, Christians, we are a priesthood. Each individual believer has the privilege of entering into the presence of God. Hebrews reminds us in chapter 10 
that therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. The Old Testament temple had three courts, and only the high priest could enter the inner court once a year. And when Jesus died, the veil, which is kind of an understatement for us, when we think of veil, we think of a see-through thing, thin piece of material, like maybe a bride would wear or so forth. But this was like a thick, thick, thick curtain. When Jesus died, that veil was torn from top to bottom, separating the inner place in the temple, signifying that now we can enter through him into that place. What else did priests do? They offered sacrifices on behalf of, of other people. The New Testament tells us now as believers we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That means everything you do with your body is done as an act of service to God. Whether you eat or drink or drive a car or make a meal or read a book or hammer a nail or shoot a basketball or mend a shirt or perform surgery, whatever you do with your body, you should do it as an act of sacrifice for the glory of God. Then it says in Hebrews 13, we're to offer up the sacrifice of praise. We also, as priests, offer up sacrifices as we praise God and give him thanks with our lips. And the third way we offer sacrifice is through good deeds. Hebrews 13 says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. These are acts of love, of giving and sharing to others in need. So that's what priests did. So are you, you recognize you're a priest, that through Christ you can enter into the presence of God, but do you intercede on behalf of others? Do you pray for your family and friends and acquaintances and those who yet do not know Christ? I try, though I fail more than I succeed, to keep a list of ten people I am praying for to become believers. People I know that God has allowed me to be part of their life, that from all I can tell, they're, they're not uh, believers in Christ. And I try to pray for them that God will open their eyes to the truth. And I seek opportunities. Most of the time, I fail to do so. Most of the time, I fail to pray for them. But it's just a way that we are called, as priests, you might say, to intercede on behalf of others. Well, then in verses 9 and 10, he says that not only are we part of this building, but we're a chosen race. We're not only priests, we're chosen. He's referring to the church, the true Israel. This church is not... Or this choice is not from skin color. It's not black or white or red or yellow. It's new people from all races, from all colors and all cultures. And now altogether we are seen as aliens and strangers in this world. So the chosen race is chosen from all races. People from every tribe and kindred and tongue, as Revelation says. And it's strictly based on God's design. Now, who were the chosen people in the Old Testament? The Jewish people, right? The Hebrew nation, the descendants of Abraham. I don't know if you've ever wondered, well, why did God choose them? Well, God tells us in the book of Deuteronomy. He said this in Deuteronomy 7. Speaking of, of the Jewish people, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose, choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So from that passage, and I didn't read it all, but why did God choose the descendants of Abraham to be his people? Was it because of their strength? No. Was it because of their numbers? No. Was it because of their mental uh, superiority? No. Was it because they were moral and upstanding? No. He chose them simply because of his grace. A kindness shown to them entirely without merit on their part. And so for you, believer, God's choice was not based on anything he saw in you that impressed him. It wasn't the size of your faith. It wasn't the sincerity of your heart. It wasn't the goodness of your intentions. It wasn't the greatness of your understanding. It was entirely his choice based on his grace. So when Christ in John 15 said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, God gets all the glory, not us. So who am I? Back to the original thought of we need to remember who we are if we are to persevere in the faith. Who am I? I am chosen. I don't know why. It was nothing in me of more value than anyone else. I did not earn it or meet any conditions or criteria to get it. It happened before I was born. I stand in awe of it. I bow and accept it. I long to be faithful to its purpose. In Romans chapter 8, there we have this uh, paragraph that, that gives an overview of God's work from before time began and, until glorification in heaven. And it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you've 